Hey there, I'm Brad Fallon, and you're listening to Why and Why Not, the show where we take a look at why American government does things the way it does, and ask ourselves whether it's time to make some changes. In January of 1899, a force of nature burst into the executive mansion in Albany, New York. This force's name? Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt had just recently returned home from the Spanish-American War, where he led the Rough Riders and was dubbed the Hero of San Juan Hill. Now home in New York as a popular war hero, Roosevelt decided to make a run for governor. New York Republican Party boss Thomas Platt saw the popularity of Roosevelt as an opportunity to keep a Republican as governor of the state. And so, he threw the full weight of his political machine behind the candidacy. Teddy ultimately won the race after receiving just a few thousand more votes than the Tammany Hallback candidate. This victory was almost certainly delivered by Platt's machine, and the party boss felt that this would give him real influence over the new governor. But of course, we're talking about Theodore Roosevelt here, and he didn't really answer to anybody. So while Platt expected the governor to make high-level appointments at his direction, Roosevelt refused, and the relationship between the two began to sour. This all finally came to a head when Teddy supported a bill to tax certain corporations in a new way. This lifted the curtain and revealed to these corporations that the money they were giving to Platt's machine provided them with little to no real influence over the governor. Platt realized that if he wanted to keep his machine alive, he needed to get Roosevelt out of Albany. So ahead of the 1900 Republican National Convention, Platt conspired with President McKinley's team to rig the vote and ensure that Roosevelt would be nominated as vice president. In Platt's eyes, Roosevelt would have little influence as VP, and kicking him upwards into national politics was the best way to stop the change he was making. And to Platt's credit, it worked. Roosevelt had little influence as VP, and is actually quoted as saying, I would a great deal rather be anything than vice president. But in September of 1901, something the party establishment hadn't planned for happened. President McKinley was shot and killed. And in the words of McKinley's political mastermind, Mark Hanna, that damn cowboy became president of the United States. In the history of Roosevelt, the vice presidency is often mentioned as a simple stepping stone between governor and the presidency. But this is the second highest ranking office in our nation's government. Why did the Republican bosses think this was the place where Roosevelt could be the least impactful? And what does the vice president actually do anyway? On this episode of Why and Why Not, we're looking to answer that and more by digging into the vice presidency. Despite being the second highest ranking office in our nation, the vice presidency is something that's often mocked. We're talking about the office that the very first occupant, John Adams, called the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. And Adams wasn't alone in this. John Nance Gardner, who served as VP under Franklin Roosevelt, famously said that the vice presidency isn't worth a pitcher of warm spit. But the award really goes to Selena Myers, the fictional vice president from HBO's Veep. Being vice president is like being declawed, defanged, neutered, ball gagged, and sealed in an abandoned coal mine under two miles of human shit. It is a fate worse than death. <laughs> she is so much more eloquent than John Adams. And clearly the high level of visibility that the office provides makes it significant. For instance, it's a big deal that at the time of this recording, we have a woman of color as VP. But I do think it's worth pondering why this high-ranking office is regarded as so inconsequential. I mean, what does the vice presidency actually do? To find some answers here, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. The creation of the vice presidency is a great example of the states acting as laboratories of democracy. That's because the Articles of Confederation didn't have a VP. But when the framers went back to the drawing board to write the Constitution, 
They looked at what was working well in the states, and some states had lieutenant governors to serve as a sort of backup governor. The Founding Fathers saw some wisdom in this. I think the thinking was that there should be a designee such that if a president died before the electoral term was complete, there would be an obvious successor without necessarily it being a hereditary successor. So the context of the crafting of the Constitution is really important because in 1787, when they were writing this language, they were only four years out from the end of the revolution. So they were very concerned about a monarchy. They were very concerned about a hereditary system. And so they thought that if there was a designated person then that and that person didn't have to fight for that power, then maybe you'd be less inclined to invite corruption. That's Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky. She's the author of The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, and is an all-around expert on the executive branch. And what she says here makes a lot of sense. The Founding Fathers were starting a democratic experiment, and this role allowed for a simple succession process in case a president died. And seeing how the medicines of the day included lead, mercury, and arsenic, it was a pretty good idea to have a plan in place. So the framers included the role of vice president in the Constitution, but they didn't exactly go into much detail. The primary responsibility is to be breathing and exist as a backup in the event that the president would be incapacitated or die. And then the secondary duty is if the Senate has a tie vote, then the vice president would cast a vote to break that tie. And those are the only two responsibilities that are designated in the Constitution. And it may sound weird that the vice president can cast a tie-breaking vote in the U.S. Senate. But this came about because constitutionally, the vice president is the president of the U.S. Senate. This was another idea borrowed from states like New York, where the lieutenant governor was the president of their state senate. But unlike the Speaker of the U.S. House, who serves as the presiding officer of the body and is very powerful, the VP served primarily as an administrator who kept debates and Senate work going smoothly. And the truth is, it wasn't necessarily abnormal for the Constitution to provide only vague direction as to how offices should be carried out. It's why today, we credit George Washington for setting so much of the precedent that defines the presidency. And as the first vice president, John Adams did the same. Well, John Adams set a couple of really important precedents. The first is one that he probably wouldn't like very much, which was that the vice president for most of American history has not been particularly involved in executive matters. Washington did not invite Adams to a single cabinet meeting. He occasionally solicited Adams' advice on various issues, but generally kept him at arm's length. Now, Adams was involved in a lot of the more social elements of the presidency. He attended a lot of dinners. He attended a lot of social events. But from the real power centers, he was not really included. And I think many people would love a lofty job where your primary duties include existing and going to fancy dinners. But most people who ascend to the vice presidency are highly ambitious, and being so close to power but so uninfluential must drive them crazy. And that is certainly how Adams felt. He hated the vice presidency. He felt like it was a thankless task. It had no real responsibility. The responsibilities he did have, he resented. He had to sort of stay out of Washington's way, but was clearly in Washington's shadow and was his successor, but not really. And that really difficult sort of sticky spot is one that most vice presidents have really identified with. But to be fair, John Adams did do more than just breathe and eat. 
In fact, he cast more tie-breaking votes than any vice president thus far, and set the standard that the vice president voting could become a somewhat routine thing to happen. Now, there is another mention of the VP in the Constitution that has nothing to do with the roles of the office, but rather everything to do with how they're elected. And it is far different from how it's done today. Unlike the presidency, which Americans can run for directly, the Constitution set up a different model for VPs. Under the original, unamended Constitution, whoever received the most electoral college votes would become president. This obviously hasn't changed. But back then, the second place candidate became vice president. And honestly, that's hard to even imagine today. I mean, under the original model, Trump would be Biden's vice president at the time of this recording. And while I do find the thought of that pretty amusing, it does open the door to some serious problems. For one, this almost ensures that a political rival to the president becomes VP. And any dysfunction aside, this creates real incentive for the VP to conspire to have the president assassinated or impeached or otherwise corrupted. And this is a place where I honestly just don't know what the framers were thinking. They created a system where an ambitious person would be put into a do-nothing job and have the most powerful office in the land separated from them only by the heartbeat of their political rival. You don't have to be Frank Underwood to see how this could play out. But the other problem was that there was no way to distinguish between electoral votes for president or for vice president. So you would essentially have each party's presidential and vice presidential nominees competing with each other for the top job. And in 1800, that's exactly what happened. Thomas Jefferson was clearly supposed to be the Democratic-Republican nominee. Aaron Burr was clearly supposed to be the vice presidential nominee. He was from New York, so it was good regional balance, and they thought it would be a really powerful ticket. The problem was that all of those electors voted straight down the Republican ticket, and so Jefferson and Burr tied. And because there was no ranking designation on those ballots, that tie was then thrown into the House of Representatives. So yeah, it's pretty crazy that the person who was clearly supposed to be elected as vice president would try to snake their way into the top job on a technicality. But we're talking about ambitious politicians here and some stereotypes ring true. But just imagine if you'd cast a vote for Obama in 2008 and ended up with President Biden instead. Since Jefferson and Burr were both Democratic Republicans, there was no simple party-line way for Congress to vote a winner. In the end, it took 36 ballots for Jefferson to be selected as president and Burr as vice president. And now these two people who just had the mother of all falling outs in front of the whole country had to serve together. There was quickly a recognition that this could not happen again. This needed to be rectified. And so the 12th Amendment was passed, which basically kept in place the two votes system, but made it very clear that there were going to be basically two different ballots. And so each elector would cast a vote for a president and a a vote for a vice president. So this patched up a pretty glaring hole in the system. But this wasn't the only change in how we select the vice president that happened at this time. With the rise of parties in early America came nominations for president and for vice president. But this was in the era before primary elections, so each party's congressional delegation simply picked nominees for president and vice president. I'll go into more detail on this in an episode about how we nominate presidential candidates. But the important thing to know for this episode is that the presidential nominees often had little say as to who their VP would be. Rather, it was a party decision. Party members would take into consideration things like how to balance out a ticket, often geographically, who had been loyal to the party and deserved an award, and things like that. Over time, this shifted to be a broader party decision, so the legislative branch wasn't able to have such influence on who occupied the top job in the executive branch. But this led to the rise of power brokers and party bosses exerting significant control over the nominating process, and all sorts of backroom deals were made to install people in the highest ranking offices. 
But still, the presidential nominees had little say in who their ticket mate would be. This may have been part of why presidents and vice presidents didn't necessarily see themselves as partners. And once in office, they had pretty different jobs. As I mentioned earlier, the VP spent a considerable amount of time presiding over the Senate. And some framers and early American leaders thought if the VP was heavily involved in both executive branch and legislative matters, that it would violate the concept of separation of powers. So the vice presidency was primarily a legislative role for the first roughly 150 years of the country. But again, since the Constitution is vague about the Veep's actual duties, this varied dramatically depending on who occupied the office. John Adams was very active in the Senate. He lobbied senators on legislation and frequently lectured them on procedure and things of that nature. Thomas Jefferson was less involved in individual matters, and rather spent his four years as VP writing his Manual of Parliamentary Practice to help future VPs preside over the Senate. Other VPs, including Calhoun, Dallas, and Morton, became masters of the Senate rules and precedents and used them to influence debates. But still, others didn't become involved with the Senate much at all. Grant's vice president, Henry Wilson, spent his time in office writing a three-volume history of the opposition to slavery. This series was never completed, by the way, because Wilson dropped dead in his Capitol office while writing it. And while this variance in duties caused the VP to be somewhat obscure for much of American history, an incredibly important assassination caused the country to reconsider who should occupy the second-to-top job. For his second term, Lincoln selected Tennessee native and Democrat Andrew Johnson to be his vice president. This was an important signal that the country could become whole again following the Civil War. But when Lincoln was shot and killed by John Wilkes Booth and Johnson took over as president, the country had to grapple with the dramatic change in leadership. The really dramatic switch from one administration to the next forced people to reckon with what happens if the president is no longer in office. And there had been presidents that had died, but the incredible dichotomy between those two people forced citizens to reflect and reckon with that choice in a way that they hadn't really. So people started really considering whether the VP would be ready to take over as president if tragedy struck. And it wasn't until the 20th century that the vice presidency changed significantly again. In 1920, Warren Harding had been elected as president and Calvin Coolidge ascended to the vice presidency. But Harding was probably too busy being Washington's most powerful playboy to stick to the status quo, and he started inviting Coolidge to cabinet meetings. This really began the shift towards the VP becoming a more active member in the executive branch. By the mid-1950s, the vice president had completely stopped presiding over the Senate as a normal part of their duties. And increasingly, the office became one of presidential advisor who would be appointed to run projects or represent the president to foreign heads of state and other important figures. But it's not exactly like this is a simple switch to being more influential. Some historians point to Walter Mondale as the first vice president that had real influence and authority and a real voice in the administration. I think that that's partially true. I think the real turning point comes with the selection of Dick Cheney under George W. Bush's presidency. And that's when we start to see presidents thinking about the vice president as a partnership as opposed to just maybe an advisor. But along with seeing the VP as more of a partner came presidential nominees having more influence over the selection process. And this developed from the party nominating someone at the convention to the presidential nominee announcing their pick ahead of time like what we have today. And as Dr. Shavinsky said, we can look to VPs like Cheney and see that he had real influence in the administration and took on some of the duties of the presidency as assigned by his boss. Cheney is often considered to have been essentially the co-president who made significant foreign policy decisions. Walter Mondale started the tradition of having weekly lunches with the president, and Lyndon Johnson was the first VP to have an office in the executive office building. 
When Spiro Agnew became the vice president with Nixon's election, the president gave the VP an office in the White House for the first time and allowed him to weigh in heavily on policy decisions. The power of the office probably peaked with Cheney thus far, but Biden was always the last person in the room when President Obama made significant decisions. However, this did change when Mike Pence became Donald Trump's VP. But interestingly, Pence did show just how important the office could be. He certainly was not a particularly strong vice president while he was in office. He pushed back on President Trump on almost nothing and went along with whatever he wanted until the very end. And then he broke with President Trump in a very dramatic fashion. And while I disagree with almost none of his political positions, he, you know, did what the Constitution says, and he upheld his constitutional duties, and that is a pretty important line in the sand. Dr. Shervinsky is referring to the actions that Mike Pence took on January 6th. Ahead of the certification of Electoral College votes, Donald Trump was calling on Pence to reject ballots in certain states that Trump had lost. This would have resulted in neither Biden nor Trump receiving the majority of electoral votes, and the election would have been thrown to the House of Representatives to pick who the next president would be. The Democrats controlled the House at this time, but that just wouldn't have mattered. You see, when the House selects the president, each state's delegation gets a vote. And since Republicans controlled a majority of state delegations, and a majority of Republicans had already voted to reject the electoral votes, this would have almost ensured that Donald Trump would remain president despite losing in the election to Joe Biden. All of this could have happened. Pence could have thrown out the election and remained in power himself. But he refused. This prompted Trump supporters to storm the Capitol and try to stop the certification of votes, while Trump himself tweeted, quote, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. To be honest with you, I don't have a lot of good things to say about Mike Pence. But he did uphold his oath to office and prevented a coup on January 6th. This wasn't just a profile in courage for him, but it's demonstrated just how important the vice presidency can be. Our whole system of government came down to the vice presidency, and he rose to the occasion. Today, Kamala Harris seems to be fitting back into Biden's role as VP. She's largely a partner, and reportedly always the last person in the room before a big decision is made. And she's the successor of an office that has changed significantly over time, and she'll almost certainly leave her own mark on it. But this is why and why not, and we have to ask whether this role should be changed to better serve the country. We'll dig into what it could look like right after the break. Welcome back to Why and Why Not. Before the break, we took a look at how the vice presidency was shaped up over time. And the bottom line is that the responsibilities of this office are somewhat vague, and the candidates are selected by each party's presidential nominees fairly independently. But I think it's worth asking whether we need to make some changes. First in regards to the duties, and second in regards to the election. So, how could we change the duties? Here's Dr. Stravinsky on one idea. The presidency is an impossibly huge role. The things we expect the president to take care of are absurd, and no one person can possibly do them, which is why we have a very extensive White House staff, a very extensive executive branch, a growing cabinet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It makes sense for the vice president to take on a set number of responsibilities. How that works gets a little bit more complicated because although the vice president is elected, so it's not an appointed figure, which is which is good in a democracy, Depending on what responsibilities they take on, it can really 
cause a rift between the president and the vice president. It can cause competition. It can cause, you know, various political issues. So I wonder if there's a way to better fold the vice president into the White House operation rather than treating it as a separate office, as a separate entity, folding it into that process. So there's just less need to have competition, less need to have friction between two different staffs. I don't know if that's possible, but that's one idea. And this could make sense. We could require that the vice president is a governing partner and actually split some roles off of the presidency. I mean, the president is required to run the military, lead Congress, prepare for natural disasters, steer the economy, and manage foreign relations all before lunch. We're kidding ourselves if we act like one person can really do all of this. So instead of handing it off to staff and political appointees, maybe it makes sense to give some of these duties to an elected person like the VP. I mean, this would add a level of accountability and transparency to these important duties. However, it's hard to imagine what this could actually look like if the VP could be the final decision maker on issues the president may have an interest in. So we'd want to make sure that the VP is still secondary to the president. But there is another model that is closer to the Founding Fathers' original idea for the office. The other idea is to lean into the John Adams model, or what one might think of as a parliamentary model, which is... Maybe it makes sense to have a vice president who is a lot more involved in Congress, who potentially plays more of a prime minister type role to lead the president's party in Congress, to try and build coalitions, to move legislation forward. And in order for that to work, I mean, I don't know that that actually is, is feasible under the current constitution and separation of powers, but I do see the value in that type of concept. The vice president would really have to be pulled from someone in Congress and pulled from someone who has incredible authority in Congress, and there would have to be a embrace of that position by congressional leadership in order to make it work. And there are roadmaps to see how this could work. In states like Texas, the lieutenant governor controls the work of the state Senate. This would provide frequent leadership changes in the Senate and could allow the people to vote as a nation in a single election to choose the direction of Congress. We know that congressional leadership is incredibly powerful. But currently, the people have no direct say in who becomes majority leader of the Senate. Of course, if the whole point of making the VP head of the Senate is to bolster the voice of the people, the current selection process wouldn't really work. Think about how we currently elect the vice president. The party nominee picks the candidate, and then we vote in the general election. But how often are people actually voting for the vice presidential candidate rather than the person at the top of the ticket? I think reason will tell you that it's just not that often. So electing the head of the Senate through what is essentially an appointment by the executive would just not really give the people much more of a voice in choosing congressional leadership. For this to work, we'd likely need to elect the vice president completely separately from the president. Here's Dr. Shavinsky. If we want to go the more parliamentary route, then it does make sense to perhaps have a separate election, like a lot of states do. A lot of states separately elect their lieutenant governors. Now you run the risk that the president and the vice president would have a terrible relationship and would not get along and would be highly unproductive. Um, and, but maybe that's a risk worth taking. And maybe if that person is elected in their own right, they have a little bit more authority in Congress and a little bit more authority in that relationship. And this is a really interesting idea, in my opinion. Imagine how much it would change the responsiveness of our government to the people if we got a direct say on the leadership in both the executive and the legislative branches. If a president and vice president were elected with an overlapping agenda, you would have to call that a real mandate by the people, and pressure to make changes would be immense. 
We would also have seasoned legislators who aspire to be the head of the Senate, making their case to and building their support among the American people, rather than to members of their party's Senate caucus. However, as Dr. Shavinsky said, we would run the risk of the VP and president being rivals, and this could potentially create incentive for the VP to conspire to impeach or even assassinate the president so they could take over in the top job. And this could also lead to the Senate leader being of a different party than the majority of senators. And at that point, it's unclear whether the members would actually listen to their leader. Now, personally, I think we've seen this tested in states where the governor and lieutenant governors are elected separately. But of course, this is the federal level and it comes with a lot more power, so it's just impossible to know exactly how things would play out. But of course, if we don't want the VP to fulfill the Senate president role, it may not make sense to elect them separately at all. If we want the vice president to be more folded into the White House structure, it probably makes more sense to have that person be nominated because then the president can really pick who they want to work with, who they trust, who they have a good relationship with, and build out that relationship. In this case, the last thing we would want is a president and vice president as rivals since it would hinder work from getting done. It actually seems that we could adopt this model without any changes to how we select VPs today. But in all, I think these changes are worth considering. In my view, there is something lost by having such a high-ranking official be so uninfluential in our government. I mean, why even have the role and not simply replace the president with, say, the Secretary of State or Speaker of the House in the event of their death? But that doesn't mean we have to make changes. However, I think Dr. Shavinsky perfectly summed up the reason why we should think through this when she said this at the end of our interview. Well, I think this subject is a particularly good example for the why and why not question. And what I would encourage listeners to take away from, from this conversation and the subject more broadly is that we have the oldest living national constitution in the world. That's a really long time for a system to survive, and there's a reason most other systems haven't survived that long, and that's because oftentimes the best wisdom and knowledge of the 18th century doesn't necessarily match up with the 21st century. And the framers of the Constitution were brilliant men. They came up with extraordinary ideas and rhetoric, but they knew what they didn't know, and they were very honest and forthright about the fact that the Constitution was a series of compromises that was the best that they could possibly achieve, but they hoped that future generations would come up with new ideas, better solutions to problems that they hadn't anticipated, and would continue to revise and amend and make more perfect the Union. So we do them a disservice, and we dishonor that memory when we treat it as a sacred document because they did not treat it as a sacred document, and they did not think that it was a perfect system. So I think that it's just really important to keep that context in mind when we're evaluating our government institutions is that they were not handed down from high upon a hill on a marble tab. They were crafted by very mortal people who knew that it was flawed and were doing the best that they can. And so I think it's really up to us to think about not do we want to preserve something that, you know, was a, a really good compromise in 1787, but how can we make it better work for our contemporary moment? And yeah, I could never have said that so eloquently, but I completely agree, and frankly, it's the goal of this podcast. And that's it for this episode of Why and Why Not. What do you think about the role in the selection of the vice president? I'd love to hear from you. Let me know by leaving a review and comment on this episode, or by tweeting me at Bradley S. Fallon on Twitter. A special thanks to Dr. Shervinsky for agreeing to talk with me for this episode. 
if you want to learn more about the executive branch, I seriously recommend picking up a copy of her book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. And thanks for giving us a listen. Until next time, I'm Brad Fallon, and this has been Why and Why Not.